0: Hey, stay tuned, listeners. It's Wednesday evening, and I'm exhausted, as I'm sure many of you are. And I'm sitting in an office at CNN with my producer, Kat. Earlier today, uh, we taped a whole episode uh, with former Obama strategist David Axelrod about Tuesday's elections, which is what everyone was talking about and foremost on everyone's minds. And you'll hear that conversation in a minute, and I think it's pretty good. But that interview was taped before the news broke about the forced resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So here's a couple of very quick thoughts on that, and you'll hear more of what I have to say in a different place. But for now, um, as I tweeted today, I think it's it's a dangerous time. I think we have to be very worried about a panicked, upset, obstruction-minded president who just got, even though he doesn't use this word, shellacked in the elections. The House has changed party. The Mueller investigation proceeds apace. There's a lot of indication that other indictments are coming down. There's a lot of indication that other people close to Donald Trump may be in the crosshairs. And Donald Trump does what he always does, just like when he fired Jim Comey, both out of anger and out of self-preservation, he takes dramatic action. And we're at a particular time now during the transition phase between the current makeup of Congress and the next makeup of Congress in January, during which time a an acting and in many ways, unaccountable acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker can take action. And there's reason to worry that he will because he has literally written articles and made statements about what he thinks about the Mueller investigation, including suggesting that it can be starved for funds or that its scope can be restricted. And I've got to believe that Donald Trump had some understanding of those views, maybe even interviewed him about those views, And maybe even got a promise that Whitaker would not recuse himself, even though there are calls for that that are legitimate as we speak. You know, a person who has seemed to have prejudged the special counsel investigation, been critical of it, and suggested ways to undermine it or restrict it is not necessarily, optically speaking, whether it's a real conflict or not, there's certainly the appearance, it seems, is maybe not the best person to be overseeing it. So I'm worried about it. If you're worried about it, you should be. Congress is not yet in a place where I think they might pass good legislation of the type that Chrissy, Ty, Whitman and I have proposed through our task force, because the new Congress has not yet taken their seats. Look, so buckle up. I don't know what will happen to Rod Rosenstein. I don't know what will happen to other figures who are important, but clearly something has begun and it began very quickly after the election. Uh, needless to say, there's a lot more to discuss about this subject, which brings me to an announcement, the timing of which is kind of fortuitous. So it turns out we're kicking off a new membership service called Cafe Insider that will bring you more content from Cafe and me throughout the week. The Cafe Insider will include a new weekly ad-free podcast, a newsletter, text alerts, conference calls, and more. And we're starting that pretty soon. In fact, later today, we'll be sharing a taste of the Cafe Insider podcast. On that new weekly show, I'll be joined by Ann Milgram, the former Attorney General of New Jersey and a regular on Stay Tuned. For an unfiltered conversation where we will break down the headlines and take stock of what's happening. And so, as luck would have it, given the events of the last 24 hours, the first episode of Cafe Insider is all about the session's resignation, or firing, depending on your perspective, his successor, Matthew Whitaker, and the implications for the Mueller probe. To listen to that other podcast, go to Cafe.com/slash Preet and enter your email. Later today you'll receive a special link to listen to the episode of me and Ann talking about Jeff Sessions. Again, that's cafe.com slash Preet, P-R-E-E-T. Enter your email and you'll receive early access to the first episode of the Cafe Insider podcast. And now here's our regular episode of Stay Tuned. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: These people were high-character people, and that's why they got as far as they got. They were really preaching a gospel of community and not playing the game of divide and conquer.
0: That's David Axelrod. He was the chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns. He's now the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, the host of an excellent podcast called The Axe Files, and the senior political commentator at CNN. I speak with him about the only thing on anyone's mind this week, Tuesday's elections, and what democratic control of the House means for the next two years. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners. We have two more shows coming up in our fall tour. I'll be in Los Angeles with Kumail Nanjiani on November 29th, but first, we're headed to Washington, D.C. for a show with Chuck Todd on November 15th. That show's at the Lincoln Theater, right next to the original Ben's Chili Bowl. It's going to be a great night. There are limited tickets left, so please visit cafe.com slash tour and get your tickets now. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. Support for our live show is brought to you by the new Showtime documentary series, Enemies, the President, Justice, and the FBI. See you in D.C. Hey, folks. So we're taping this at our usual time, Wednesday about lunchtime. And uh, like many of you, I'm extremely exhausted. (laughs) I'm very tired. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. But I had a couple of thoughts to share about the election before we get to the interview today. You know, I I know that there are some people who are disappointed in some of the races. Um, I have disappointments too, and I have other races that I'm happy about. But overall, as I said on Twitter this morning, I'm not disappointed, I'm elated, because there's now a check on this presidency. And I think that's very important for both Democrats and Republicans, for both conservatives and liberals. I think it's extremely important And I think we should be happy about that and not let that get drowned out by particular races that you thought would go a different way. The other thing I want to say is, you know, separate and apart from individual races and how they unfolded, you have an increase in the number of people who can vote uh, as a legal matter. In Michigan, they passed a motor voter law that lets people register to vote when they have an interaction with the DMV. And then something else that I'm incredibly excited and pleased and gratified about that I've been mentioning on the show a number of times. And that was a ballot initiative in the state of Florida. I know some people are disappointed in the Florida governor's race, and there's a recount happening in the Senate race. But another very important thing happened, and that is the ballot initiative on the re-enfranchisement of people who have been convicted of crimes in Florida passed. Under that ballot initiative, large numbers of people who have been convicted of crimes, with some exceptions, like for rape and murder, once they paid their debt to society they can then vote in future elections. It passed 64% to 35%, well above the 60% threshold that was required. 5 million people in Florida voted in favor of the ballot initiative. Only 2.8 million voted against. Here's another point I think that's worth making. Turnout, when people are engaged, increases. And we saw all over the country, huge amounts of additional people coming to vote. Young people not just people of, of, of my advanced age, that's a positive sign too. Because it's my sense that once you get people to begin to vote, once they're registered to vote and they've done it once, they're more likely to do it again. So that's another good thing. We also saw a much more diverse group of people running for office, particularly women. There are all sorts of folks who may not have been you know, the most famous candidate running, didn't get all the attention and oxygen on the cable news networks, but all over the country at the federal level and also the state level, more women ran more people of color ran, and a lot of them won. You'll hear David and me talking about one of those people in our conversation. And the final thing I'll say about the election is take a moment to appreciate the fact that we have free elections and that people abide by the results of those elections. Yesterday was difficult for a lot of folks, no matter what side you're on. There were lots of suggestions of what people should be drinking <laughs> to get through the evening. But the anxiety you feel and the, the tension that courses through you, is a virtue of our election process, that there are no preordained results. Upsets happen, as they should. And I'll summarize that point with something Gary Kasparov tends to say before and after every election, former guest on the show, who tweeted in the last day the following, Win or lose, treasure the spectacle and power of truly unpredictable elections America. It's a privilege that most of the world has never known. Amen to that. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by The New Yorker magazine. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today, not just on subjects we cover here on Stay Tuned, politics, the law, the Supreme Court, but on topics it would never occur to me could be so fascinating. You pick it up and wind up reading tens of thousands of words about the world's diminishing supply of sand or the search for lost heirloom beans. Their writers are like wizards, turning esoterica into narrative gold. You've heard their reporters here on the show, Jane Mayer on Brett Kavanaugh, Ronan Farrow on the Me Too movement, and Jeffrey Toobin live with me from the town hall. And yes, I did joke at the show about whether anyone finishes New Yorker articles, but if you do finish an issue, there are almost 100 years of archives online for subscribers, Plus, newyorker.com publishes 15 to 20 new stories every day that aren't available in the print magazine. Never be bored again. So don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash preet. Stay tuned, listeners. Save 50% when they enter code preet. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. Plus, get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo, print and digital subscription. Subscribe to the New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash Preet. Stay tuned to Supported by WordPress. WordPress powers more than 30% of all websites, from your favorite local shops to the world's biggest companies. When you build your website and your business on wordpress.com, you join a global, high-traffic network of organizations and entrepreneurs. With WordPress, you can claim your own corner of the web with a new custom domain name or use one that you already own. Create a site that fits you with beautiful templates and customizable themes. No design experience needed, lucky for me. It's easy to import and export content to and from your WordPress site. And WordPress offers a range of e-commerce options to promote and sell, from an easy-to-use payment button to a full-fledged online store, like maybe a clever button, maybe a snappy slogan on a t-shirt. I read your tweets, and I know you all have some deeply held beliefs you might want to share. Go for it with WordPress. WordPress makes it easy to reach a global market. Built-in SEO makes your site search-friendly and ready for the world. You can get your website up and running for just $4 a month. The time to grow your business is now. Build your website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com preet. That's wordpress.com preet for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com preet. David Axelrod, thank you so much for being with us.
1: I'm so happy to be here on a eventful Wednesday.
0: Yes. So, how much sleep did you get?
1: Very little, and you know why? Because I'm a junkie for this, and I all my life. Election Day was the biggest day of the year, and so once I got off the air at one a.m., I just went back and you know keep refreshing my uh, all the election results sites and waiting to see what's happening in on the West Coast and watching all. I mean, I probably hit the hay about five in the morning.
0: Five in the morning. So are so you're no. tired. But are you sick and tired?
1: <laughs> no. You know what? I, you know, one of the things that I woke up thinking was uh, that we had done a terrible disservice to the the really, really inspiring candidates who won yesterday. And there really are, I mean, all over the country, uh, you know, there's a young woman in uh, the western suburbs of Chicago, really exurban and rural Chicago, a district that's 95% white, probably. Young African American woman named Lauren Underwood, who uh, worked on healthcare issues in the Obama administration, has a pre existing condition, was so outraged by the effort to undo the ACA that she ran for Congress against a long term incumbent. No one ever thought that that guy would lose. And she won, and there are stories like that all over the country, and they kind of got eclipsed by the Senate races. But there's, you know, there's a wonderful new group of people, many of whom first time candidates who got elected yesterday, and Crete. I also think we did a disservice to Beto O'Rourke, to Andrew Gillum, to to Stacey Abrams. It's been decades uh, since. Anyone in Texas did as well as Beto O'Rourke. No one would have predicted that a year ago. You know, the notion that Andrew Gillum, who nobody believed would be the nominee, would uh, fight to a near draw in Florida, where, by the way, every one of the last few governor's races have gone to the Republican by just about the same margin. Right. And then Stacey Abrams in Georgia, a, a black woman in Georgia, running a really, really close race. You know, these are inspiring people who are not done.
0: No, not by, not by a long shot. I mean, I guess you're getting to a point that I, I mentioned on Twitter this morning, and we're taping this, uh, I should mention to folks on Wednesday about lunchtime, that even though there was remarkable success all over and, and stories that are inspirational and the House was taken back by the Democrats, there's this sort of lingering... Bad feeling and and so some people you know seem more disappointed than elated. I'm elated for the same reasons that you that you're saying one should be and and so I guess the question is glass half full half empty kind of thing. you know the story with Abrams, O'Rourke, and Gillum, you know all of whom I think were hopeful, positive, idealistic candidates, yeah, but they came up short and so what is the lesson other candidates are going to learn from this?
1: I think the wrong one, I'm afraid, because they came up short, but they got farther than anybody ever thought they would. You know, everybody focuses on the policy prescriptions that they were offering, and they said their defeat was a repudiation of the left. I think, first of all, again, they got so much farther than anybody thought that they would, but the reason they did was less about the particular policy nostrums they were offering, and more about their approach to politics. I think people are tired of division, tired of this grinding, kind of awful, you know, scenario that that we have to live with on a day-to-day basis. And they want to believe that we can be a community. And uh, the thing about those candidates are, without in any way sacrificing their principles, uh, they also campaigned with an open hand, and uh they went to places other people didn 't go
0: yeah w- would you say these folks abrams o 'Rourke Gillum, are in the mold of your former boss, Barack Obama, or are they something different i
1: would I absolutely would I think that the thing that that really struck me and i, I you know i didn 't see any of them campaign, and I watched more difference. And I said a little more of o 'Rourke because more of his stuff was online and so on. Watching him, the thing that was so striking to me was the fact that he treated everybody with respect. He went into every community in that state, and he didn't make assumptions, and he treated people with respect. You know, when President Obama said when he was campaigning this time, the character of our nation is on the ballot, these people were high-character people, and that's why they got as far as they got. They were really preaching a gospel of community and a mutual respect and regard and shared interests and not playing the game of divide and conquer.
0: I don't know how you'll take this question, and I'm a big fan of all three of those people who ran, but do we, particularly progressives, engage in a bit of hero worship and want our politicians to be something more heroic than just sort of good people with good character (laughs) who are inclusive and who have good policy ideas?
1: I think it's a very good question. I think there is a romanticism to progressivism. I mean, you know, the, the right is just propelled by resentment, you know, at least right now. Especially now. I, I don't want to do what I accuse others of doing. The fact is I know a lot of very, very fine people who are conservatives who, you know, many of them are not fans of the president. I mean, and I'm not even sure he's a conservative. He's a, he's a Trumpist.
0: <laughs> he is, he's, he's a party of one.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he he has no real allegiance to any particular idea. He mines resentment for his own personal use. But I, yes, there is an element of that. But I also think, Preet, that it takes charismatic, appealing leaders to combat what we've seen. I think across this country, people were elected yesterday who are exactly what you say— not all of them are going to be candidates for president of the United States. Not all of them are going to be governors and senators. But they, they are going to be earnest, good stewards and promoters of practical, progressive ideas and values. And that is really important. But so Donald Trump is formidable. He gets treated by some of uh, our friends as a kind of, you know, buffoon.
0: Yeah, no, people infantilize him and they underestimate him every day.
1: Totally. The the guy has an innate genius for the exploitation of grievance and the modern media environment. He understands it at a level that few do. It's going to take, you know, an equally gifted person to, to challenge him in 2020.
0: So, So I take from what you're saying that if you were in the business of political consulting and you had a bunch of clients who were thinking about running for the House or the Senate or governorships or the presidency in 2020 going forward, that you would encourage them to embrace openness and idealism and inclusiveness and all of that. What do you think your equally talented counterparts in the Republican Party would be saying to future candidates on the, on that side, given the discussion of the caravan, given you know, how people talked about crime.
1: Well, if they were smart, what they would be saying is, in the short term, there's profit in this. In the long term, there's doom, you know, for the party itself. Now, there may be places in this country where there's, that's going to be uh, a winning formula. Remember, I mean, you know, when you look at the results yesterday, the president will herald his results in the states that, uh, some of the states that he's won before. He really didn't do particularly well in some of these purple states, you know, think about this. We'll see what happens in Florida. There's going to be a recount now. But he may prevail there, largely because he had a, a governor with a lot of resources who actually tried to distance himself from Trump at the end. Right. But in the other states, all the sitting senators won uh, handily. He lost a governor and was a long-term Republican Governor in Wisconsin. They lost the uh, governor's office in Michigan. There were pickups in an, uh, in Pennsylvania. There were a number of pickups, some of course of redistricting, but governor, Sen- uh, senator went one overwhelmingly. So his appeal is limited to his core base, but that is not, it's not a growing base. And I think that, you know, the long term prospect for caravan politics is diminishing. It's interesting to see some of the places where Democrats won House seats yesterday. Like where? You know, Oklahoma, South Carolina, the woman who cleaved so closely to Trump that she beat Mark Sanford in the primary lost her seat yesterday.
0: Right. Do you think the progressives in in some of these difficult red districts and red states should be campaigning as progressives? So, for example, I've had Doug Jones on the show, and I think he's a terrific guy, and he campaigned and won, as a moderate in Alabama, and Joe Manchin the same in West Virginia, but then you had Better O'Rourke get very close you know, by appealing to a larger audience in Texas, people who haven't voted before because there are Democrats in the cities in in Texas. Is the Doug Jones strategy the one of the future? Is it the Beto O'Rourke strategy, or does it just sort of depend on the case? Well,
1: really, you know, they reflect their environments. Texas is very tough. Texas also includes some of the biggest and most vibrant metropolitan areas in the country, which is where O'Rourke really ran up the score. I mean, I think, you know, there's no doubt that the Democratic base is now metropolitan areas, including suburban areas around the country. And if you have them, you know, that the O'Rourke approach is probably going to be successful. And I I think that ultimately, you know, it's also important to be authentic. I, I don't think Doug Jones, is playing a role. I think he is who he is. Right. And, and so he is authentically more, moder- you know, I don't like using these terms, you know, because I don't know what they mean exactly. Cause I, I figure he's pretty passionate about things like healthcare, just like everybody else. We know he's passionate on things like civil rights, but he reflects his, his state. And, you know, someone, I, I, interesting, I had uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's this young mayor from South Bend at uh, at, at my Institute of Politics at the uh, University of Chicago, and it was a forum uh, uh, after 2016 on the future of the Democratic Party, and uh, some kid stood up and said, why should I support Joe Manchin? And Pete said, I guess my view is, I'm for the most progressive candidate who can win. And it was an interesting way of looking at it. Because the fact of the matter is that Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez would not get elected the senator from Alabama. Right.
0: No, she would not. You know,
1: but Doug Jones is a fine guy, and on 90% of things, you would probably agree with him. So do you say, I'm not going to support him because of the other 10?
0: Oh no, I, uh, I remember in 06, I, I was working in the Senate on the policy side, but I would overhear conversations about politics when I worked for Senator Schumer. And there was a lot of anger on the part of progressives that, you know, the, the Senate campaign folks were pushing Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, who's, yeah. you know, a more again to use the word that you don't know, like, moderate well, and Catholic.
1: By the way, one of the most decent, honorable human beings I've ever met.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what Senator Schumer said at the time, uh, you know what, we we need to have the majority to both be a check on the president and to get certain policies enacted. And he's a vote, even if you don't like everything he stands for. And you know what? In 2006, the Democrats took back the Senate.
1: And Bob Casey has, on um, so many issues, been a pivotal vote for things that people who, who consider themselves progressives believe are core issues, Healthcare being one of them. And it's a really good example. Because I, I'm happy about Casey in the United States Senate. So I don't agree with everything that Bob Casey did, but fundamentally decent human being. I got to tell you a quick story about him. Now you got me going. Uh, <laughs> in uh, 2008, he called Barack Obama when, we, when Obama was running for president. They were colleagues. He said, I, I want to endorse you. It was on Easter Sunday, I remember. And we, we were having a difficult primary with Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania, and Bob said, yeah, you know, I want to, everybody's ganging up on me and I want to be for you. And they had a long talk. And he, you know, Obama was very appreciative. And then the Reverend Wright story broke, like in the next few days. And this says a lot about both these guys. O- Obama called Casey back and said, Bob, if this is going to create political problems for you in your state, I want to release you from your commitment. And Casey didn't skip a beat, and he said, I'm as strongly for you today as I was yesterday. And he spent six days on a bus with us in Pennsylvania campaign, in a primary, he knew we were going to lose. And, you know, I learned a lot about him from that experience, about both of them, really.
0: Well, so then, so going back to what your, your former boss, the former president said yes. about America's character being on the ballot, What do you then surmise was the answer to that question? How did character do on the ballot overall?
1: It depends. I I mean, there are several dozen, you know, new members of Congress, most of whom are, as I said, you know, splendid, inspiring, uh, often first-time candidates uh, who I, I think are going to bring new character to. To the Congress, there are six new governors around the country who are going to make a big difference in their states. And one of the failings of the Democratic Party, and I take responsibility for some of it because I was there for part of it over the last decade, has been an inattention to what, what's going on in the states. You know, I know that I think half a dozen state legislative chambers changed hands as well. I think that, you know, it obviously was a mixed verdict in uh, in states that Trump carried by large numbers, Democratic senators lost. The truth is, that has been the pattern for some time now, going back many cycles, that, you know, these states tend to go tribal and, and align themselves with their presidential choice. So, it, you know, clinically, you would have said, yeah, you know, if uh, Donald Trump carries a state by 20 points, probably that person's not going to get reelected to the Senate. And that's what happened. Right. You know, I would have loved to have seen people repudiate his tactics, which were beyond contemptible in each and every state. But I I suspect that part of the reason why some of these congressional candidates won in races that were unsuspected uh, is because people there did say, that's not what I want. It's not what I believe. Right,
0: but there's other there's other stuff too, right? So you you've mentioned a couple of times healthcare and yes. Ezra Klein of Vox said something interesting before the election, or maybe the morning of the election. He said, you know, Obama in part lost the House in 2010 because of Obamacare, and wouldn't it be strange if Democrats won back the House in 2018 yeah. because of Obamacare? Do you think that's what happened? Yes,
1: I do. I think it, healthcare was the Single biggest issue that people cited in exit polls for their vote, Democrats overwhelmingly won those voters. And beyond that, uh, there were three states, red states, I think Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, where people voted to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, even as Republicans were winning. I actually think John McCain saved them from a larger disaster when he turned his thumb down on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. So. I think health care was a big, a big issue, and I think Democrats would be wise to continue to make that a centerpiece, and not just for electoral purposes, but because the country demands it.
0: Let's talk about the future a little bit and what all this means for the next couple of years and beyond. House leadership. Should Nancy Pelosi become the speaker again?
1: <laughs> it's a complicated question for me because I worked with her. Yeah. And I saw her, we, there wouldn't be an Affordable Care Act without Nancy Pelosi. You know, we wouldn't have expanded Pell Grants without Nancy Pelosi. There's so many things that would not have happened. But for the fact that she was there and she is a brilliant tactician within those four walls and strategist, I mean, she's she is as good a legislative leader as I've seen within those four walls, but, out, you know, she bears the... The uh, scars of a couple of decades of prominence and battle. She's been made a negative icon. And, you know, the fact that so many candidates chose to uh, renounce her as part of their candidacies speaks to her as a a liability in terms of the outward-facing portion of the job. The other thing is, there is a generational issue here. You've got all these young members coming in. You have many younger members who are there. And you they look at the leadership and the leadership is all nearing 80...
0: Yeah, there's no opportunity for advancement. I mean, I think one of the big problems in the House and in the Senate on the Democratic side, the Republicans are a little bit better about this, is um, committee chairmanships are basically based on seniority. So you've got to wait till you're 80 before you can lead a committee. Yeah. And do you think that should change?
1: No, it's a, it, it, it is a real problem. And my sense of Nancy... You know, I, I had her on my podcast, and I asked her. Her father was, as you know, mayor of Baltimore. Her brother was mayor of Baltimore. She grew up in the ward politics of Baltimore. Right. Everybody thinks of her as this effete San Franciscan. She's a, a tough, canny veteran of the ward politics of Baltimore. I said, what did you learn growing up in that household? She didn't skip a beat. She said, I learned how to count. Right, right. And, you know, she knows exactly where she is. My guess is that she also understands that she's going to have to make some changes if she has a chance to stay, you know, because you have a couple of probably close to two dozen members who have said they absolutely won't vote for her. And that means on the floor as well. And so, you know, she can't get elected speaker that way. And so that's a knotty problem because these members are not going to want their first act to be defying the pledge they made to their constituents. And,
0: right, so, so who else is there?
1: Well, she will have her own candidate, If she, I, I'm sure. if The one thing I, I know about her is that she's certainly not going to cede the speakership to the people who are trying to get rid of her, and that would be completely unlike her. And I suspect she also would want a good steward. So I don't know. I mean, there was talk, for example, that if she couldn't be Speaker, that she might support Adam Schiff for that job. But I mean, that's speculation.
0: Right. And Adam Schiff has another important job, which is a good segue to my next question. You know, a guy like me who basically used to issue subpoenas for a living yes. and investigate people for a living. So maybe I'm, I'm overly intent on investigations and uncovering fraud, waste and abuse and other transgressions, but I'm not in the house and I don't have a committee chairmanship. So there's this question about investigations. And I, I saw Mitch McConnell already this morning, pre-prepared talking point point. Warned the Democrats against what he called "quote unquote" presidential harassment, which is an ironic yeah. phrase for a lot of reasons that we don't need to go into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then I saw you know another very smart person who you and I both know, Ron Klain. So so Ron Klain says in this in this piece in the Washington Post, among other things, that for the first hundred days, no subpoena should be issued, no hearing should happen, and kitchen table bread and butter issues are what Democrats should focus on. And there's plenty of time later, and. There's something to be said for that. What do you What do you think should happen?
1: I, I thought there's a lot of wisdom in what Ron said. And you know, I was asked about this last night on the air. And my reflexive reaction was, it's bad to lose the House because there is an instinct on the part of the House to play the oversight role they're supposed to play. I don't know. I, I think leading with a positive agenda for the constituents will appeal to the new members, and to the public, and and it's the right thing to do. You know, all this stuff about we're going to get the president's tax returns and all that stuff, that doesn't interest me very much. I do worry about some of the things that are going on, for example, in agencies like the EPA and the relationship between industry and the decision-making there, because that affects people's lives. And so I guess what I'm saying is I would be prudent, I would be deliberate. I would make kitchen table issues, as Ron suggests, front and center, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about it.
0: Let me end by asking you a couple of things. One is, you know, politics is sort of visceral, and even though, as we said earlier in the conversation, that, you know, maybe we put politicians too high on a pedestal, but the reverse is also sometimes true. We demonize folks, and that's just natural, but is there is there anyone in particular who lost yesterday that especially pleased you? Uh, Want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Dana Warbacker.
1: Well, yeah. That's an easy, an easy <laughs> one. I should associate myself <laughs> with that. I was kind of disappointed that Steve King escaped yes. by three points in Iowa because, you know, that would have been a, a wonderful message if the guy who is Trumpier than Trump on these uh, divisive issues and invoking race and so on had lost. It was extraordinary that his race was so close, and that was heartening. But I'm going to go with your choice just because I'm too tired to think of my own. <laughs> all
0: right. I'll forgive you your laziness this, this once. <laughs> Thank you. I Final question it. to you, and then I'll, I'll let you go get a nap if you can. Mm-hmm. What kind of person can win in 2020? Is someone like Beto O'Rourke capable of mounting a legitimate campaign? So is it going to be First Beto all, O'Rourke?
1: Yes, I think he is, and I think there'll be a lot of pressure on him To do so, I always felt like if he came within uh, an eyelash of winning in Texas, that there'll be a desire to see him consider that. So, yeah, I think he will consider it. I think the ability to take the case for the character of our country to people, both through the language we use and the manner in which we campaign is is really important. But, you know, I I have to say, I've never felt the, the need. Everybody wants to know who's the person, who is going to be the candidate. You know, sometimes campaigns are necessary. Sometimes we need campaigns to see who emerges, to see how people deal with challenges, to see how people present their case. I think this is one of those times. I could not sit here and tell you, as we uh, speak today, who the ideal candidate would be. And I think Democrats do themselves a disservice if they rush to judgment on that let's see how people perform let's see how people handle you know the bright light and the pressures of a of a candidacy you know beto as an example acquitted himself very well in a high profile race running for president is different but uh you know it'd be interesting to see him out there and there there are many others so my advice would be let's Get everybody out on the field who who feels they have something to offer and we'll know.
0: David Axelrod, thank you. I, I know I'm very little sleep and with all sorts of other obligations you have. It's Continue always podcast always thank it's you. With you. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much, David. Get some rest. Okay, thanks. Well that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to Stay Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna weiss Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.